Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. God, we don't come in this place just to consume, just to be present or laugh at a few jokes or hear a good one-liner that we'll remember, but rather we come here to be placed on the potter's wheel in which you form us and you shape us in the intended purposes you had for us when we were created into this world. So God, today I thank you for those who are present in this service, our third of the day in which in all of them, may you impress and create from the willingness of these hearts. So God, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. We've been in a series on James. Uh, If you've been here any of the last few weeks, we've been in a series on James. This is James part three today. And in my opinion, we we went through the summer and did a series on John, which I thought was extremely important. And and if you know anything about John's history and who John is, it's had incredible and unparalleled access uh, to Jesus. But James is one that I feel like a lot of people in this room might be able to relate to. Not just because James was the half-brother of Jesus, but the trajectory of James's life was an interesting one. He grew up this skeptic. He grew up a doubter. Proximity to Jesus did not necessarily mean he believed he was the Messiah. Only did he come to faith post-resurrection in which he realized, oh, dang, my brother came back from the dead. I might, be, I might should listen to him. The leadership role in the early church, if you know anything about Acts, the term Christian existed in the church of Antioch later on down the road. In the beginning, there was just, Peter stepped up one day, gave an incredible speech in which thousands get saved, which starts the first community of believers in which they don't even know what they're doing. They just know that they love Jesus, are gonna sit under the apostles' teachings who stood under him, and then from that place, hope to be formed as apostles at that time were sharing the load. But over time, what we see is that the the, the apostles get sent out to start different works, and James assumes control of the church of Jerusalem, not only assuming control of the church of Jerusalem, but really being the one who will lead Jesus in that day and time. We know that this, this letter in the, New, in the New Testament is the first book written. As you look at James's life chronologically, he dies as a martyr, and you have to backtrace from there where it was written. We know that this is the first letter, the first epistle, the first book of the New Testament written. Now, once again, what I feel like a lot of us will be able to identify is that James's journey is not all butterflies and honeycombs. I don't even, does that even work? I don't know. But what we see, and I think a lot of us, what we do is we have a view of God like this. I meet Jesus and then life forever. Just descends into the glorious awesomeness. And I'm not saying that it, that it doesn't in some respects, but what I am saying, and I've said from the beginning here is, when I team, because that name a little bit has been hijacked, it's been, it's been misused, mistreated, mislabeled, and obviously I bring up the name, and you better believe I'm going to stand on that name. But what I talk about, and what I believe most people are searching for, whether you subtract the name Jesus and insert whatever other deity you want, and I believe part of the creative intent of our Creator's purpose in us was to create a hole in the heart. And as proverbial as it sounds, the hole that only he could fill, or rather should I say the fulfillment that only he can provide. 
and the contentment that only he brings. And so James, once again, the trajectory is one who stays faithful, disciplined, fulfilled and content. But it wasn't this. It rather was this. Thousands. And it's great for a season until famine breaks out. We know that famine breaks out in the church of Jerusalem so bad that letters are sent out to other churches saying, can we take up a tithe that we, and an offering that would go back to this church because the people in Jerusalem are starving. Could you imagine me standing on stage preaching and I couldn't, preaching about faith in God and his of us in this room are starving and don't know where our next meal would come from. Not only that, is the church starving, but persecution almost simultaneously breaks out in which people are being drugged from their homes, tortured and imprisoned, culminating with the fact that their pastor is martyred for his beliefs. Once again, the trajectory of James is not this. It's, wow, this is great. The church is exploding. Famine, persecution, death. See, I think a lot of the times we want to hear the stories of the overcomers, the stories of the resurrection power, and I believe all of those are important. But the stories of the ones who stayed faithful, the stories of the ones who stayed resilient, the stories of the ones who never wavered, those are the stories I want to hear. Because this story of James immortalized his example in Scripture because he stayed true in the midst of of everything that he went, that came against him. So with that, like I said, we're gonna be talking about James today and specifically today I'm titling today's talk, James part three, a look under the hood. Now, some of you guys are gonna have to listen a little, normally I'm pretty loud and boisterous, but I lost my voice on Thursday night at our worship night doing jumping jacks. Preach two services and I have team night tonight, so I'm gonna try and hold back, but that that doesn't work for me. So I may lose it about halfway through. It's just because I'm burning. Um, so with that, I'm going to be talking about James part three, a look under the hood. The text today is James 1, 13 through verse 20. If you know anything about this series, we've been just taking a, every week we just take the next. So next week will be verse 21 through wherever the Lord kind of leads it. But this week, we're going to be James. Before we do, like I said, a look under the hood. I'm inviting all of us today to look under the hood of our hearts. Now, we know where that statement comes from, cars. How many of you guys remember your first car or are still driving it? My first car, 1999 Kia Sophia. I bought it with 52,000 miles. I blew the engine up with 87,000. For some of you guys that don't understand, that's ridiculous. For the other part that understands and is like, how do you blow up a car's engine with 87,000 miles on it? I would uh, return the statement with this. We used to call that car the Red Rocket. <laughs> and your boy was swerving. So I'm going to tell you, that was my first car. And then I, I was blessed. I did missions right after high school when I was 19. I had gotten into some sales and done really well in sales. So I bought myself a nice car. And then halfway, right almost to 20, I realized, man, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Hashtag sales is tough. But, but they work for the Suns. They sell tickets. Anyway, um, that's the only reason they go to this church. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's a joke. Oh, I'm letting them rip today. Uh, so here's the deal. I remember I sell my car. 
Because I go back to work in ministry, and as I'm working in ministry, what I would do is I would save up, buy a car cash, run it into the ground, drive it. And I saved up one year, so much, the most money I'd ever saved in my life for a vehicle, the most amount of money I ever held in my hand, $7,500. Which at 23 years old, that's like the equivalent of 90 k with inflation today. That was a joke. <laughs> 7,500 bucks, and here's the, here's the real teller of me being a 40-year-old, is literally I bought most of my cars on Craigslist. Also, I'm not 40. <laughs> on Craigslist. Now, many of you guys are like, okay, I, don't, I was not around during the Craigslist age. That's fine, but it was before Facebook Marketplace. People would post their ad, and then you would message them. And I remember for me, I was messaging multiple people, and I kind of took pride in my ability to bargain. And so what I did is in this one, I lived in Michigan at the time, and in this one instance, I, was, I had bargained and found a Jeep Liberty, and it was 9500 bucks, and I talked the guy down to 7500 and in Michigan, it was an 03, it was clean, had a clean Carfax, so I get my $7,500, I remember putting it in my pocket, this is where this story really comes from, is I'll never forget like, being like, man, I might be rich, <laughs> 7500 bucks, man. I'm driving there so excited with my friends. We're going to go pick up my new car. I've been messaging this guy, 7,500 bucks, it's yours. I, I'm driving, and after two and a half hours of driving, I'm in Detroit, which is the east side of the state. And as I'm going into Detroit, I'm starting to look at my address, and I realize that the, the person I'm meeting is on Eight Mile Road. Now, if you don't know anything about Eight Mile, there's a famous movie called Eight Mile about a man by the name of Marshall Mathers. <laughs> Um, Eminem's life story, which you shouldn't watch, but I've watched, but you shouldn't. But anyway, and it's a rougher area, eight mile. And I remember I get off and I pull into this. I'm going down the street. I'm thinking I'm going to meet somebody who's like just selling me in front of their house. He goes, buying from a dealership. So I walk in, ask for the guy. He comes out. Hey, we've been messaging back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your car's out here. So he takes me out there and we walk out and he goes, there's your car. And he points at it and I go, bro, that ain't the car. And he looks at me. He goes, no, that's the car you... That's the car you inquired about. I said, that's not the car I'm, I inquired about. This car was three different shades of color, probably because it had been in three accidents and they just pieced together. It had been bondoed because it rusted and so they'd paint it over. I'm like, bro, this is not the car. He's like, I'm telling you, this is the car. And I looked at him and I said, hey man, if this is the car you're going to sell me, that's fine. You can sell it to somebody else. I'm leaving. And he goes, oh, actually your car's over here. I'm like, oh, Really? Okay. So we go over and I'm looking at the car and I'm like, man, this one, the pictures when it's up close from what it looked like from a distance versus what it is up close, this doesn't, even this looks a little off. And I'm three, 90,000 miles. I remember I look in the hood, turn the key, 184,000 miles on it. Now immediately I see that and I'm like, okay, this guy lied to me. So I'm walking around, I say, hey man, I don't know what, but... You told me it was this. It's not. I'm not interested. I'm going to leave. And he looks at me and he goes, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not going to leave. Just, just let me take you on a test drive. And 23-year-old Micah, I just felt bad that I'd wasted his time, even though I'd wasted my time two and a half hours there, two and a half hours back. But I got a Coney dog out of it. Um, if you haven't had a Coney dog, they're good. Anyway, people like looking at Coney dogs around me for after service. But I remember we like, he like goes, you know, seriously, let me just, just take it for a test drive. Now, how you know a red flag with a car is if the guy doesn't let you drive the car, he drives you on your test drive. And I'm like, I'm like, bro, I'm like, I, okay, 
can we make it quick? And he could tell I'm not interested, but for some reason, had to take a test drive. We go in like a loop. Now, here's the craziest part of this story. I will kid you not. We go in a loop. We go around the neighborhood. Come back. I kid you not. Dealership about a half mile up. And in the road, there's about eight or nine kids playing basketball. I, I will never forget this moment. This man proceeds to floor it. Roll down the windows, honk his horn, and say, get out of the road, MFers. I'm sitting next to him. And I'm looking, and I'm like, this is what it means to be demon-possessed right here. Like, literally, like, I've never been in a situation where I'm so ashamed to be in a, I don't, and I remember he pulls into the dealership, and I look at him, I said, dude, I will not be buying a car from you. I don't care if you were giving me a car. I'm not taking anything from you. And he proceeds to look at me, and he goes, he goes, well, you're the idiot who thought that you were going to get an 03 with 90,000 miles for 7,500 bucks. You're insane. You would have never. And he starts going off. And finally, I looked at him. I said, bro, I worked as a used car salesman for six months. And you are the reason that everybody hates us. (laughs) Hate and do not want to go to dealerships. People like you. I said, you should not be in this industry. And I'm telling you, I'm not buying anything. I got in my car, got my Cody dog, and drove back. The reason I wanted... But then when I got close and I realized under the hood what was there, I realized that it wasn't what I was looking for. And I want to say this to you today. I believe God, a lot of the times what we don't realize is when we invite God, he doesn't stay distant. He wants to be up close, but in being up close, what we think is that he doesn't know or see the things that we know need work, the things that we know we're not proud of. And rather, instead, we want him to look at a distance and, and, and really hold this image of ourselves that we've got it together. And I want to say to you today, see, this point of James, what we're going to be talking about is the fact that all of us were under construction. We all need work. But you want to know something about cars? that are new, but actually the ones that have value are the old ones that have been restored. The parts have been swapped out. The paint has been redone. It's, it's restored to its original glory, and it's so rare to see it that it's worth more than it ever was when it was. See, a lot of us, we don't realize that God's goal is literally to take you And turn you into something you never thought that gives such a worth to the world that it's more than you ever thought it would be when you first encountered him. See, I'll say this, the one who limits you the most is yourself. When you get close to what the creator purchased and what Jesus has done for you, he's not looking at you with limitation. He's looking at you and saying, let's place what you'll find is your wholeness and fulfillment comes when you're swapping out parts, changing out paint job and getting new upholstery. And all of a sudden you realize that God really has made you into something new and something beautiful. So with that, let's jump into James 1, 13 through verse 20. It says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, hold on. Last week, all we talked about is testing and perseverance. This week, we're talking about tempting. Now, if you actually do a deep study on the Greek word of tempting, literally the very first definition is to test, 
which is hilarious because once again, it sounds contradictory, but we're going to actually talk about today, that today. God's temp- testing versus man's fleshly tempting. We're going to talk about those things in a second. Let's keep reading. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We're going to steep ourselves in these verses here in a second. And it's around this thought I want to give today three tune-ups to our faith's foundation and longevity. Longevity. Because I want to say this to you. God did not purchase you to only know him a season. He didn't purchase you for you to only have this incredible encounter and deep awareness of him for a period of a year or two until life hits. He didn't do that. And I believe a lot of us, we're missing out on the fulfillment of walking with God throughout all the seasons of life because the cost and the uncomfortability is too great. And right, because if you notice about James's life, there's a reason I keep talking about it. It's because there was a cost and an uncomfortability, and there was no end in sight on those. Constant cost, constant uncomfortability. But we're still talking about him today. And I believe a lot of us were not willing to pay the cost and to be uncomfortable. And because of that, God can't use us for the long-term vision that he has. And really what you might find is if you submitted to the cost and you submitted to the uncomfortability, that the thing that you seek most is not necessarily a string attached to it. He might even cut that string. But as you get closer to him, he starts to change the very things that you live for, the very reasons that you breathe, the very thoughts that you think, and in bringing them into subjection underneath him, you start to find that he truly does provide the all things when we seek first the kingdom and righteousness. The first thing is this. You must learn the difference between the tests of God and the temptation within man's nature. Out us onto the path he asks for us. Temptation of man centers on unholy and unhealthy desire. And if we will give in to these desires, how many times we will give in until it becomes normalized. And then the fruit of destruction from the normalization and God trying to restore what was sinful to being viewed as that once again. Temptation and tests may feel the same, but they're very, very different. You know what I want to say to you today is this, is testing, in my opinion, what I mean by that? Testing is related to wholeheartedness, meaning when I see people go through tests, typically what a lot of people don't realize is we profess faith in God. When we say, God, I want to invite you into my heart, into my life. I want you to lead, direct my steps, fill me with your spirit. I want, you are Lord of all, right? When we seek Lord king, messiah, savior. These are messianic titles in which he is given supreme authority in our hearts. And I believe some of us, this may be a new awareness. What happens is, is a lot of the times we say, okay, God, 
Like, or we look at people who get, have this crazy salvation experience where God, they're just on fire, moon phase, or, oh, we'll see, you know, if they can sustain it. But what we really don't realize is this, is that when God comes in, there is those things, but really what it comes down to, if you're going to sustain or not, is what happens is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings comes in and he won't share the throne. And I think a lot of us, what happens is, is where there's cost and uncomfortability is when we profess lordship, but we don't actually give him lordship. We think that he'll be present in the temple of our hearts and we can bow to other idols. We can bow to careerism. We can b- bow to financial vain pursuit. We can bow to a, to a deity of self-expression and self-freedom. We can bow to these things and profess lordship. And that's where, in all honesty... A lot of us even choose to live, yet bowing to idols. I love this, this, uh, I love this statement. It's spoken to me so much, you know. People are not, the church today, we don't struggle and we're not against atheism. We're, we're coming up against idolatry. And a lot of the times what happens is we think that no faith is the enemy. See, the reason the, the church and Christianity has a black eye a little bit in culture, duplicity, The reason the pastorate, I can readily accept this, is pastors have weaponized, misused, mistreated, or been shameful in the pastorate title that they've possessed. And so guess what? Duplicity enters in. The greatest thing the deceiver can do, the enemy, is he doesn't need witchcraft to come in. He just needs hypocrisy. And man, I'm going to tell you this. A lot of us, you have my everything, yet worship idols in our life build our lives around vain pursuits and then wonder why we don't experience fullness. Wonder why we don't experience contentment. Wonder why we don't know the wholeness of God. I want to challenge you today. The testing is about wholeheartedness. And a lot of the times God will test you to make sure that you are wholehearted to him and not to what you think you are second part about it that's in, that's intriguing to me is this is that a lot of us we don't understand that temptation is related to obedience what do i mean right we started with testing related to wholeheartedness temptation related to obedience if you notice in in the uh, in genesis when man falls and sin enters in the world where did it start it started with will you obey me or not I'm going to give you a limit in which you don't have full freedom and you don't have full control and you must submit to my will. Will you do that? See, this is all obedience is the question. Will you actually read his word and live it? Will you actually take what he says and submit your humanity to it? Because in all honesty, right, temptation is all about the urges you feel submitted to the sensitization that happens. And that desensitization is really, you don't feel the sin anymore because you've submitted to the temptation so often that the sin becomes so present that you don't even know that you're in it until you've been fully destructed because of it. See, what am I saying? Obedience, the submitted mind, heart, will, emotions of man to the word of God. That is what we must do. See, testing about temptation. I pray today that we're not getting those two things confused and we're also clear as we look under the hood of our own hearts where we stand. The second thing is this. What you passionately desire, 
must be passionately designed within him. Desire produced apart from him produces a slow death, carried away and enticed by the illusion of something good rather than your father who wants to give you both good and perfect from above. Aware of them and the influences they have on everything that you do. I love this definition. He wants to give you both good and perfect. Man, how many of us want God's goodness, but we don't realize that there's even more to him than goodness. That he wants to give you the perfect things that your heart seeks. You know what's fascinating? I told you we would be breaking down a couple of Greek words. This is the first one. James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, a lot of us, if I looked in, if I told you, hey, how many of us are in here or dealing with lust, right? Obviously, we're not going to raise our hand. Why? Because, or if you are, good for you for being honest. But really, lust is this word in our culture where we're like, ooh, sexual deviance or indecency, sexual struggle, whatever it is. See, but here's what you have to understand. Lust in the scriptures is a lot different than lust to us today. Let me talk to you about it for a second. The word lust, the definition is epithema. And it's combined from two, meaning passionate desire. It is passion built on strong inward feeling that can be both positive and negative, depending on where the desire is. The synonyms are coveting, desire, desires, earnestly seeking, impulsive, or longing. What would I want to say to you today? I want to challenge you. In scripture, lust is actually synonymous with desire. They're interchangeable terms. Your desires. See, when we start thinking through that, where do we start? Don't be enticed by your lusts. Where are we at now? Don't be enticed by your desires. Let me read a couple questions to you. And this is what I mean about, I think a lot of us, as we start to mute the edge, there's an unconscious bias that has been formed. And right now we mute the edge because we think that lust is wrong, but desire is fine. But listen to this. Someone, it's rather, I just desire intimacy. Instead of lusting after wealth and stature, it's, oh, I just desire wealth and stature. See, lusting after our neighbor's possessions is just desiring the house they have, the car they have, the TV size and not mutually exclusive, desire in this fallen world, if not submitted to God, is a sinful progression to lust that will carry you to destruction. See, a lot of us, if we looked under the hood of our car and we started to assess our desires, we could see how those desires could give birth to a progression of lust that could carry us to destruction. What are your desires today? Because if you look under the hood of your car and your desires are not submitted to the obedience of God's word and his character, I'm going to tell you this, those desires will be used for your destruction if you allow them to. There is a reason desire and lust are the identical word. And for a lot of us, we're all about protecting against lust, but we're not about guarding our desire so that we're not destroyed. Healthy desire must be in tune with the Father and the fact that he gives the good and perfect in this world. Unhealthy is when we are trying the cheap substitute of man in our pursuit of the good and perfect that all of our souls long to feel. Don't choose man's good enough and hopefully perfect. Admit to your desire to them. You're trusting that his good and perfect 
is better than your ability to produce your own good and perfect. The last point is this. The anger you allow in your heart will take up the space created for love and righteousness if you let it. Anger is not just an impulsive outburst. It is bitterness, rage, unforgiveness, resentment, cynicism, vengeance, and the wanting to get even. If you can't be quick to hear, slow to spud, that needs taken care of before it wrecks the worth of the entire work of righteousness you were intended to become. You know what's interesting, and I never caught it until I studied this passage, is that James 1, 19 through verse 20 is, is, this, is this passage. This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. My mom has quoted this a billion times to me. Does not achieve the righteousness of God. He lists three things in verse 19, but verse 20, he pulls one out. And he says, hey, I know I just said three things are important to do, but there's one right here that you must understand. And what's even more interesting is if you actually look in the New Testament, you see very little of the the pointed language that is used like this. Your anger will cost you your righteousness. Let that sink in. Now, here's the craziest part about this. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to go really deep here for our final moment together teaching-wise this morning. Anger in the Greek is a singled-out word, orge. Now, here's the interesting part. If you're going to use anger as a verb, the verb form of it is orgeo. Now, orge means impulsive, wrathful. Orgeo is the verb form, and it's a picture. It means to team, T-E-E-M, denoting an internal state or being or motion, especially that of a plant or fruit swelling from the juices inside as it ripens. Let's create this picture. Anger that cannot produce righteousness with the juices of revenge, bitterness, resentment, rage, and anger. Unable to focus on the righteousness of God because all we can focus on is the wrath of what we consider to be unjust and what it does in filling and spilling out anytime somebody gets close. Anger can't achieve righteousness because anger's presence fills you with the juice of it to where there's no other room for anything to be present. See, a lot of us, we don't realize that we want to be righteous, but we don't want to forgive. We want to be righteous, but we have anger unresolved in our hearts. We want to be righteous, but man, what they did to me was so wrong, and I can't believe I went through that, and I resent it. We want to be righteous, and we don't realize that our hearts are full of the wrong juice. What am I saying to you today? There's a reason anger cannot achieve the righteousness of God. And it's just, there's no room for it. See, when you choose to be angry, you swell up in the emotion of it in which righteousness can't even be present because there's no room for it to be present. The question of today, will you do the work this week to get under the hood? To understand the tests of God and temptations of man. To evaluate your desires deeply and change them before those desires turn dead. How the anger we have all felt and most likely will feel again.
to destroy your ability to achieve the righteousness of God. I hope we all look under the hood today. Stand to your feet. In closing, um, just the posture we have here is uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer together, even practicing the way, which is what we've been doing on Wednesday nights with our congregation in formation together, is going through prayer and specifically the Lord's Prayer and why Jesus commanded us to pray this way. So what we do when we gather is we make sure to pray the way that Jesus told us to So to a moment of solitude here in a second in which I challenge you to take a couple deep breaths and then we'll recite the Lord's Prayer as we worship one final time. Our Father.